My name is Joel Davis. I am one of the pastors on staff here at Bayou City. Um, my wife and I, my wife Haley and I, have been attending the church for over six years now. Only been on staff for about a year and a half. I mostly oversee the community groups at Spring Branch, um, but I love the opportunity ever so often to get up here to be with you guys, to worship with you guys. A lot of familiar faces in this room and in the other services that are just very dear to us that we love very much. And so it's always just a real pleasure to be with you this morning. So anyway, um, grab a Bible. We are going to open to Luke 2. We're in week three of a three-week-long camp out with some shepherds keeping watch over their flocks by night out in the fields near Bethlehem. Um, and there's something, there's something tricky about this passage. And let me explain what I mean. If you have been a Christian over any Christmas season, if you've gone through Christmas as a follower of Jesus, if you have any connection to a church over the course of your life, or if you're just like paying attention around this time of year, you have some familiarity with Luke 2, with the story of Mary and Joseph and the census and being registered and having to travel a certain distance to, you know, all of these things, right? The problem is that what happens is some, something happens between what we know what is actually happening in Luke 2, what scripture is trying to teach us, what Luke is writing to us, gets conflated, gets jumbled up with all of these touch points over many, many holiday seasons, Christmas pageants, made-for-TV Christmas adaptation movies and stuff like that. And so instead of envisioning first century Judean herdsmen outside of Bethlehem, we are more likely to envision like a precious moments figurine or our kid starring as the shepherd in the pageant or like lowering the angel out of the rafters to you, shepherd, you know. And there's nothing about that that screams first century Middle East right? That's just not, not helping, not helpful to us and really trying to capture what is happening in the story of Luke 2. Now, Christmas accuracy around the Christmas season is very important to me, okay? If you can believe it, it was actually given to me by my parents, this desire for accuracy around Christmas and the, this, the way that this would flesh itself out. One of the ways is when we were growing up, my mom, would not allow us to put out the wise men with any of our nativities, okay? Some of you are chuckling. How many of you know why she might not want that to happen? A few hands are going up. Why? Because the wise men weren't there yet, okay? So it is not historically accurate. It is not factually correct to suggest that we would already have the wise men at the manger. No, these are we three kings of Orient. They've got a ways to go. So if we really wanted, if we really wanted those magi out, they were going to have to go across the room on the mantle, okay? <laughs> or we might hand those to the neighbors and say, hey, move this one foot closer to our house each day leading up to December 25th, Okay. This is good neighborhood evangelism. We're going to get the whole block involved in our advent calendar, okay? 
No, no. In all seriousness, though, in all seriousness, what I want to do today is I want to chisel away at years of rust and stuff that has accumulated around this story. I want to brush away some cobwebs. I want to take off some lenses that we have put on over the years that have prevented us in large part from seeing what we ought to see in the story of the shepherds and the angels' announcement of Christ's birth. I don't pretend to bring you any new truth, though, in doing that. As believers, as readers and students and lovers of God's word, we know that there is no new truth to be found here. Instead, it is very old truth that you and I need to clear away some of the brush and the stuff that distracts us from seeing clearly, okay? So I just want to dig, and I want to dig and dig and scrape and scrape until we can see this old truth with fresh eyes. One of my favorite musicians said, the gospel is an inexhaustible well that we could never plumb the depths of. I want to see if that's true this morning. I want to just see how deep down the well of Luke 2, 8 through 14 can we get and can we find something, can we see something with fresh eyes? Let's give it a shot, shall we? Luke 2, starting in verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Again, one of the problems with seeing this as we were intended to see it is that we as Christians have this large category, large subset of words that we can call them Christianese, we can call them Bible words, whatever it may be, however you define it. We've got this big set of words that we use all the time, like we know exactly what they mean. And maybe we got a pretty good idea. We're certainly not completely unaware but when was the last time that you ever used the word glory in a non-religious context? I'm going to guess it has been a long while. I don't even remember the last time that I used the word glory, not just referencing scripture itself or in a praise and worship song or something, right? So let's start there. The glory of the Lord, whatever that is, shone around the shepherds and it was so much so that they were terrified, some of your translations say. Or I'm a big fan of Charlie Brown Christmas and so I can always think of Linus coming out there with the blanket and reading the monologue and they were sore afraid, right? I love that scene, it makes me cry. Right, so that's the King James Version. So sore, afraid, terrified, filled with great fear. What is it about the glory of the Lord that would do this to someone? Right? Well, let's, let's think about this. Luke, in, in this verse, if you were to try and envision what must the glory of the Lord look like, probably 
most of us, maybe, would think of big, puffy white cloud, blinding white light, angel above the cloud, angel in front of the cloud, angel below the cloud, somewhere, right? Big white cloud, blinding white light. That's what we think of when we think of the glory of the Lord, okay? Well, and that image is not unfounded. You don't have to turn there. I'll flip there for us. But in Exodus 16, verse 10, it says, And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. Okay, so between Luke and Exodus, Luke is trying to draw our attention to a common Old Testament theme where the glory of the Lord is symbolic of or represented by the presence of God himself, the presence of Yahweh leading his people out of Egypt through the wilderness, out of captivity into the promised land, cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. This is the glory of the Lord, the presence of God among his people. And that sounds like something like what is going on in Luke, right? But then when we jump ahead to Psalm 19, verse 1, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. So now, if we're bringing that Psalm 19 into the picture, it's not puffy white cloud that's the glory of the Lord. It's something that the puffy white cloud is saying about God. It's something that all of creation is saying about God, actually. The heavens declare, the skies proclaim, everything in creation is testifying to the glory of the Lord. So what is it now? Now it seems to be something about the supremacy, the power of God, the significance of God, the creativity, the beauty of God demonstrated throughout all of creation. It's in the, it's in the cloud, it's in the mountains, it's in your cup of coffee, it's in, you know, you name it. All of creation, a living testimony to the glory of God, his beauty, his power, his significance. Jump ahead to the New Testament. How about 1 Corinthians 10, 31? Whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do it all. For the glory of God. But now if we've only got Luke 2 and Exodus 16 in mind, we come away from that verse and go, do it all for the puffy white cloud. Why would I do that? That sounds so strange, (laughs) right? Do it all for the glory of God. What do we mean now? We're talking about the honor, the reputation of God. Everything that you do, whether you're playing basketball or reading a book or going to work or going to church, raising your kids. Do it in such a way that is a good reflection. Do it in such a way that reflects well the honor and the reputation of God to those around you. My youth pastor used to say, do it in such a way that would make God look good. Not that God needs my help, but I can certainly put a stumbling block in people's way of how, we, how they view the honor and reputation of God. So everything that you do, do it all for the glory of God. Or we sometimes will say, we want to glorify God in everything that we do, right? How about Romans 3, 23? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Well, now 
it's not the precisely the honor and reputation that we've fallen short of. It's more like this standard of moral perfection and purity that is God's. In fact, God is the essence of that moral purity and perfection. And every single one of us, no matter how hard we try, no matter how much effort we put into it, we fall short of God's standard of moral perfection. The Bible uses all of these images and so much more to talk about glory. So I just want to build this really like kind of build our categories of how we think about glory. Think gravitas. Think weight and significance. And so when we, when we close our eyes, we want to get ourselves into the scene of those shepherds on that night. We want to imagine ourselves in this desert. It's a desert. It's the Middle East. It's the middle of the night. Millions of stars out in the sky. We're watching sheep. It is a night like any other night. When all of a sudden, you are blinded by and scared stiff by the full weight and awareness, the visceral awareness of the presence and significance and worthiness and power of God himself. Come to your sheep herding self with a message. This message, this presence of God that has so historically been tied to Jerusalem and the temple, it's not there. It's in this backwater village outside of Bethlehem, outside of Jerusalem. And there's a message, not for the high priest, not for the king, for some humble shepherds. What do they have to say? Can we even blame them for being so terrified? And an angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Unto you is born this day. Let's talk about that phrase, this day. Those of you that don't know me, I, run, I like to run half marathons and marathons, distance runner. Um, done this for most of my adult life, like 10 plus years. And last January, I finally uh, decided, I ran well enough at the Houston half. I thought, okay, this is it. I'm going to give it a shot. I'm going to go for it. This coming year, I'm really going to train and try and qualify for the Boston Marathon. And if you're unfamiliar with this process, uh, let me tell you about this. You run hundreds and hundreds of miles. You deprive yourself of sleep. You ice aches and pains for months of your life, all so that you can run 26.2 miles, hopefully fast enough to Earn the right to go do it again for hundreds of dollars in Boston, okay? 
It is as insane as it sounds. I have no idea why I enjoy this so much. I'm just telling you, this is what I do in my spare time, okay? You may read books, and that is a much easier hobby to take up, I assure you, okay? Uh, I'm not saying it's even a good idea. But all that to say, for months now, I have had January 20th, Sunday, January 20th, the Houston Marathon circled on my calendar, anticipation, excitement, just all kinds of effort and work going into that day going well, okay? And when I wake up that Sunday morning, I will probably say something to myself like, man, this is it. Today's the day. Today is the day. And there will be this sense of culmination and fulfillment and like, wow, all of this work. Now we get to see it played out, okay? And no doubt, every single one of you in this room has something, some day marked on your calendar, probably more significant life event than that. You're looking forward to all kinds of things and you're saying, oh, that's the day. I can't wait for that day to come. Multiply that feeling, that anticipation, that buildup times millions. And we are scratching the surface of the angel's announcement. I mean, I mean, I just want to see that. I want... I want to put myself in that scene and that angel and just saying, can you believe it? Shepherds, can you believe it? This day is born to you, Messiah, Christ, our Lord. I mean, like I want to believe that angels can cry tears of joy because there are hundreds of years of prophetic fulfillment just bound up in that statement. The entire nation of Israel predicated on this event, on the coming of Messiah. And then you guys, he's here. He is here this day. We read this children's book to our daughter, Lainey, most nights. Um, It's called The Noisy Night. It's a play on the silent night. The first page of the book is, it may have been a silent night when Jesus came to earth, or it may have been a noisy night to celebrate his birth, okay? And really, like I'm totally aware that this is like a very clever way to get a lot of like barnyard animals into the story of Luke 2 and things that are not even like there's raccoons and coyotes and cats and I don't know how all these things, but they're all like mooing and chirping and, you know, clucking and neighing and everything is so fired up, right? And I just wanted to, I want to, like me, like I can just tend sometimes towards cynicism on these sorts of things. I don't want to, but I'm just like, oh, come on. Why are we reading this book? You know, like, and I just, I get jaded about the fact that it's probably some big book conglomerate that's just trying to make a a bunch of money off of some evangelicals around December, you know, but then stop, hold on. Stop with your cynicism and jadedness, Joel. 
I mean, it even says that the shepherds glorified and praised God for all that they had heard. I mean, I want for that announcement, I want to believe that those shepherds were just like, yes, I grant you, I grant you that most of the Jewish people did not have the right idea about Messiah, okay? I mean, that is clear throughout all of the gospels. Hey, you're a Messiah? Sweet, when's Rome going down, right? Hey, you're a Messiah? Sweet, when are we getting out of here? Okay, but their joy, their unbridled joy that the glory of God would descend on them and an angel would announce to them, unto you is born this day. I want to believe that they were filled with joy. And if they were good students of the Torah when they were growing up, then they may have even heard echoes of the prophet Isaiah in that announcement. Again, you don't have to turn there. But I'll read for us Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness... On them has light shone. Jumping down to verse six. How, why has this happened? How has this happened? For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. A child will be born. And now these shepherds know has been born. And because of this child, there will be peace. What happens next? And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. We need to talk about this term peace for a little bit. Because we experience or we use peace in a very limited context. For us, peace just really means that the guns are not going off anymore, the rockets are not being fired anymore, and people aren't killing one another anymore. Peace for us usually only means the absence of war. If you're a parent of several children, Maybe only one child would be all that it takes to feel this way. You might say to yourself, gosh, I just wish I had a moment of peace, right? And all that you really mean is that you don't want screaming to be happening or hair to be being pulled out or, you know, for there to be no fighting or like, it doesn't mean that anything has to be necessarily going well. It just means that the crazy has died down for a few minutes, right? That is enough. That is prerequisite enough for us to say there is peace, right? But this is not a biblical view of peace. 
Luke is aware of this. Luke actually, if, you, if we jump back up to verse one, Luke is contrasting the kind of peace that is being extended to God's people with a different kind of peace. If you read in verse one, the person in charge at this time is Caesar Augustus. If you know a little bit about Roman history, right, all of us, obviously, um, you know that Caesar Augustus instituted or initiated or announced something called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. But historically, this is a deeply ironic title because Rome never really experienced peace in this way. To the extent that there was ever peace under the authority and rulership of Rome, it came as a result of military brutality and incredible, incredible amounts of bloodshed. Hey, we've got peace in Rome because we slaughtered everybody that disagreed with us. Okay? And these angels are announcing not that kind of peace. They're announcing what we read in the Hebrew Bible is shalom. The kind of peace that is instituted by God, that is initiated by God. We talk about biblical peace. We have a sense of fulfillment, a sense of wholeness, of things functioning and working exactly as they were intended to. Relational harmony. Not just an absence of war, but a presence of love and unity, cohesion. Things are really humming when there is shalom, peace that's initiated by God. And that peace is coming in the form of an infant child. The angels are doing two things. The angels are declaring the reality of this. They're declaring the reality of the glory of God in this instance, in his sending his son among them. So remember, we talked about glory earlier and we said there was, we can certainly glorify God in our actions, but there is another sense in which you and I cannot add a single shred of glory to God. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that God is always, only, ever the most glorious being in all of the universe, in all of human history and beyond. There is no being more glorious. And so you and I can never add to that glory because there is no glory to be added to it. It is maximal glory. And the angels are declaring something. They're declaring the reality of that. And you and I can just choose to participate in that reality or not, but it never ceases to be true just because we don't feel like it should be, want it to be. But the angels are doing something else. They're also inviting the shepherds. They do. They say, you will find this baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. 
What's the implication? You heard me. Go find him. Right? Go get it. Go see. Come and see this demonstration of God's glory manifest in the coming of his son. In the sending of Messiah for your salvation. Come and see. Come and see. And this is, this is really great, guys, but I, I believe something about what we're doing this morning. I believe that there is a great deal of benefit in you and I just spending time reflecting on this truth. I think there's a great deal. I think we can be transformed into, more into the image of Christ by simply looking into and being amazed by and moved by and compelled by the truth of this passage. But there's also a sense in which I'm like, okay, well, wait, what now, right? What do I do with this? Because I love, love what we're learning about glory, love what we're learning about peace. But how do I actually follow this in obedience. What is it that this passage is calling me into? Because I think it is calling us into something. No doubt the applications that we could derive from the truth of this are nearly infinite probably. But I just want to give one practical, you know, this semester, or sorry, this Christmas season for the Davis family has been like one of the busiest, most chaotic ever. I think it's been the most busy Christmas season that I can remember. But I'll tell you something. I said the same thing last year. And I think I probably said the same thing the year before that. And as far back as I can remember, this is just the busiest time of my life. And I think that we can grow an incredible sense of despair about that. Like it's just never going to get any better. And we just throw up our hands and say, Hallmark stole it all from us. The season is hijacked. There's no good thing that can come from this. And if we're not careful, we can get to December 26th and we can say, well, thank goodness that is over. Okay. And I would just suggest to you that for followers of Jesus, that is probably not the sentiment that we want on our hearts and minds after Christmas. Well now, wait a second, Joel. You know Jesus was probably not even born on December 25th, don't you? You know that the church like just piggybacked off of Rome and Saturnalia and blah, blah, blah. And he was probably born in July. And Okay, okay, stop, stop, stop. I hear you. But the church universal has used this time, this Advent season for 1,700 years to recognize the coming of our Savior. I think we're on stable ground to do the same, right? And so I, but I beg of you, when you think about the ways in which 
you celebrate this time. You got nine days left to stop and to be intentional and to pour over and to reflect on this. Fine, do the presence. Fine, put the lights on the house. Fine, go nuts on that wassail, man. I know that recipe is generations old. I would never want you to throw that out, okay? But this, unto us is born a savior. And if we don't stop, if we don't throw that e-brake, man, like really stop and say, I am going to utilize this. I'm going to recapture this season for the sake of remembering that God emptied himself of all of the privilege and the power and the authority and the glory that was rightly due him and came in the most vulnerable helpless state of a baby so that you and I who are also deeply vulnerable and helpless that we might be saved we find protection in him we find life in him we have got to stop ourselves in these next few days don't get lost in the busyness we've got to stop and we've got to say this truth is too beautiful too precious not to sit a while in to dwell in and to be deeply deeply thankful for I say that I also recognize that for as much as some of us would like to be joyful around this time that there's a great many of us that have suffered around the Christmas season maybe it's this year Maybe it's years ago. And that wound just keeps getting opened and reopened every time this season comes around. I just want to say I understand. But I got to appeal to Isaiah. I got to say something that's true, that's been true for thousands of years. In the darkness of our circumstances in the pain of our suffering in the hurt that is so deeply tied for some of us to this month a great light has shown that light is Jesus did not see fit to stay at a distance. He came into our circumstances, our suffering, our pain, our hurt, our longing, our inadequacy, 
and he took it on himself. He became one of us. And I don't know, I just, I want to do better at recognizing that around this time of year. I want to encourage you, be a people who celebrate Emmanuel, God with us. We can do it. And I think that when we do, we will see that that same light that has shown on us, that we can reflect that light to those around us. I pray you see that. I pray you're a part of that, of that God using you to be light and life to those around you. Let's pray.